0: Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name's Chad Kim. Usually with me are Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams, although Tom Velasco was away while we recorded this particular episode. I thought I had actually already uploaded this episode, but I hadn't, um, and so it got lost under a pile of things on my desk for the last couple of weeks, Uh, but I will be uploading both sides of this uh, episode. This is on Book 7, St. Augustine's Confessions Book 7, where he really delves deep into what um, Neoplatonism means for him, What, how does evil exist, and these sorts of things. Evil as the privation of good is kind of the famous phrase. Um, so we'll be delving pretty deep into some philosophical territory. Uh, but uh, I'm sorry that we have not uploaded one in some time. It's been a busy couple of months for school for Tom, Trevor, and I. So we hope to have a few up- uploads for you uh, over this Christmas break and hopefully get a few recorded um, so that we'll have some new ones in January. We do appreciate all the support that you can give. We still have our Patreon account, um, so if you're feeling uh, like you want to give something during this holiday season, you can check us out there um, and... Uh, also, if you would just rate and review us on iTunes, that also would be helpful, or at least that's what every other podcaster says. Um, so yeah, so th- Merry Christmas. In Latin, we'd say uh, Felicium Diem Natalis Christi, uh, and yeah, I hope that you enjoy this episode. Um. Uh, uh, well, all right, so today... Uh, it's going to be just Trevor and Chad. Uh, Tom is preparing to take his students to Europe as he does every year this, uh, in October, um, as part of, uh, of his job at the Ambrose school where he teaches. Uh, but, um, it may be the most appropriate place for just Trevor and I to have a conversation in the sense that, uh, book seven is where we're at in the confessions. Uh, and it, um, is one of the more philosophical, um, moments in the confessions. Um, I say that because we'll ultimately get to books 11 and 12, which deal with time and memory, which are enduring, um, uh, books on, uh, on time and memory. And, uh, I like, even I spoke at a conference just last May on Augustine on time and, uh, focusing on Book 11 from the Confessions, so uh, this uh, this topic is still very live, and Augustine still sort of is the source um, for uh, for that conversation. Uh, but Book 7 uh, takes Augustine. So I think um, in order to set up sort of the the story or where we're at when he starts Book 7, uh, he has left the Manichees. He is reading the Platonists. He is all. He's going to church and listening to Augusta, to uh Ambrose, and he's kind of not sure where he sits in the middle of all of that. So book eight is going to be the, the you know the next book. He's going to make his conversion. At times in book seven, he starts to talk like he already believes in the God of the Christian faith. He's just not sure exactly who Jesus is. Um, that is who Jesus and the Christ is both. He doesn't, he kind of goes back and forth and at the end he deals with some sort of Christological heresies. So he hasn't quite uh, got there. Uh, it's,
1: yeah, it, it reminds me of how people still are today, that he, he seems to be still, he wants to be reverent to, to a God that he thinks might actually care for the world. So it's still a, like a type of theism that he's maybe clinging on to, yet it's, his materialist underpinnings and his thought and his um, and his, and the problem of evil that are still just these seem to be these huge intellectual barriers to his mind at this point in book seven.
0: Yeah. Well, and that is um, that is maybe as a good point of any to begin because for Augustine and I, I don't think this can be stressed enough um, for Augustine, the whole world is unified. So he'll, you know, he'll go on to say that some of his musings are bad, and some of his musings are good. There, there's even uh, so much to say, uh, or one he could even say that some of the way that he investigated these things was sinful. Which I think I need to start out by saying because I think many of us would say that uh, any kind of questioning or intellectual. Um, curiosity, that why would we want to call that sinful? But I think for Augustine, he recognizes that, uh, some of the positions that we take in our thought will ultimately lead to how we live our lives and how we understand the world around us. And so, um, so for him, it's, it's all intertwined and you can't, you can't separate those out. You can't say, well, that's my thought world. That's not the way that I act. Like everything is, 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 uh, tied up together. And so he's, And part of that is he's still kind of um, uh, still influenced by his Manichaeism. So in 1-2, he starts to grapple with the fact that, as I've maintained before, in the Manichaeist philosophy um, uh, or theology, religion, however you want to call it, um, God is a kind of substance. And that substance is defined as a light and a particle, a particle of light. And that particle of light can be in all things, but doesn't have to be. And there are other particles of darkness, um, and the particles of darkness are what constitute evil. And basically, in the Manichaean world, there is a very real substance of God and a very real substance of Satan. Um, And they are at work fighting in the world, and no one's sure who will win. And all of us have in us. So he says this in book in chapter 1, part 2. So I was imagining even you, life of my life, as a colossal being extended through infinite space in every direction, penetrating every part of the world's structure and beyond it in every direction through the boundless universe. Thus the world would contain you, and the sky would contain you, and everything would contain you. And those things would reach the limits in you, but you would have no li- limits. And then he goes on. Just as the mass of air that exists above the earth would not obstruct the light of the sun from penetrating, nor and perforating it, not by tearing it apart or by destroying it, so I thought you were able to pervade not only the physical mass of the sky, and the air, and sea, but even the physical mass of the earth as well. So he has. So that is that, That's a very confusing sort of statement. Uh, but what I, uh, you know, understanding his Manichaean background and understanding this these physical particles of light of God, it's like there are little bits of God that you can pinpoint little atoms of God, like the air um, that are more in some places and less in other places. Um, and they, you know, they, he, he that, those particles of God sort of go on infinitely uh, but they, they can be more or less in different places. And he ultimately wants to reject this.
1: Yeah, uh, he gives a he gives a brief argument against it, just saying things like this hypothesis seems wrong because then parts of the Earth would contain greater portions of you than others, which seems uh, silly because technically, if you're actually these particles filling up spaces, an elephant would have more of you than like a seed on the ground or something. So, which I guess that's. I guess a self-defeating point because the Anachaeans would have said that it was spread throughout. Um, and so, yeah, it kind of gives a really, a really brief argument against it, which I also want to note, I have actually heard contemporary pastors in YouTube videos defend views like this. Oh, really? Yes. Uh, I, mostly that like they use some like pseudoscience about light And how, like, light travels through things and whatnot and gets absorbed by things. And then just at the end said, God is light. And then, like, but seemed to mean it literally. It wasn't, didn't seem to be joking. Said, what if the scientists this whole time have just been studying God? Like, that's how he ended the video. And I was like, what is this? (laughs) Yeah. So, hasn't fully gone away still to this day.
0: Yeah. Um, So I – this whole conversation reminded me – so I've been teaching Intro to Theology, and um, I made a sort of weird move for an Intro to Theology class. Uh, but it had to do with some other stuff that I was reading. I spent a lot of time on the creation. And this is, I only say this is weird um, because I brought up a, what I take to be a point that has been underemphasized in theology, but the creator creation distinction. Um, and that is what does it mean that God created and uh, and or you know that God created and that we are the create the created things. And part of part of the reason that I wanted to even talk about Genesis one and two, where I teach at St. Louis University, is a lot of our kids are um, various kinds of like nurses or occupational therapists or going to be doctors. And so there is sort of this general problem of. Um what you know, they, they sort of think that okay, they're going to theology class and this guy's just gonna believe in intelligent design and uh you know, but anyway, uh and they're like you know, they, they expect me to just teach the Genesis one and two is like a scientific account of how the world came about. Uh, so in order to uh, sort of forestall that criticism, I had to read an article by a guy called Herbert McCabe, uh, who's primarily an ethicist, but he's uh he loves Aquinas. Um, And he's he's from the Order of the Dominicans, uh, and he died uh, about over a decade ago. But he says this, uh, creation then does not make any difference to things. If you like, it makes all the difference. But you cannot expect to find a created look about things. The effect of creation is just that things are there, being themselves instead of nothing. Creation is, of course, an unintelligible notion. I mean it is unintelligible in the sense that God is unintelligible. It is a mystery, not that the notion itself is self-contradictory, but it involves extrapolating from what we can understand to what we are only trying to understand. To be created is to exist instead of nothing, uh, but the notion of nothing is itself a mystery unintelligible to us. So, in a sense, the way that I would reduce this, and I think that um, you know, he's sort of working off um, a general, a general um, Thomistic account um, that. Uh, the fact, the fact of the matter is it's not that we should be trying to argue who God is exactly from creation or trying to look and say, look at this one thing that seems more created than a thing that seems less created. It's just the fact that something is, um, Mm -hmm. and, and, and so the, you know, the, 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 we have the notion of nothing versus the notion of something, um, which, uh, could be somewhat uh, difficult to understand. He says the misread, unintelligible to us, uh, but the bare fact that we are created. And so part of what this sets up is a distinction. The distinction between the thing that is totally other than creation and the thing that it created, creation.
1: Right. This this also gets to uh, the contemporary distinction and then also sort of draws the line between the two types of arguments between those who give design arguments and those who give cosmological arguments. Um, part of part of the project of people like Leibniz's cosmological argument was that it, it was sheerly making a distinction between those things that depended on other things for their existence, right? And those yep. things that seemed to be able to just exist on their own. And... Yeah, it, sound, it sounds like the the nature of the quote you read is, is along those lines, whereas a lot of people, when they do think of the creator-creature distinction, are um, probably not giving it that sort of zoomed-out metaphysical view of, oh, those things are contingent. Those things are necessary. I, I don't think that's how most people probably do think of it. Uh, they normally, and, and I think you're right, like a, an average... Joe might think of Christians in terms of using the word creation as trying to almost like, I don't know, almost like some sort of Indiana Jones type move, like show the little secret markings or something on <laughs> in the right. world that show like someone's been there uh, and, and I've made it. But yeah, I think that's why, The question that gets past all that crap when you talk to even uh, freshman philosophy students is just, why is there something rather than nothing at all? Right. Um, I I find it interestingly called nothing a mystery. I mean, I guess it's, you can't conceive of anything that's, nothing but that's kind of the point because it's nothing i mean you can't conceive of nothing in the sense that you always are interacting with something at one given time or another in terms in terms of your sense perceptions you don't at the very least you're there um so you your, um all your experiences are sort of pervaded with stuff and yeah. and that's propertyless I guess <laughs> to make up a word does seem, I guess, kind of mysterious in that sense. But I think it's, you have experiences with lacks of other things being in a certain location. So just extrapolate that for, you know, universally. And, and there you go. You got nothing. I mean, I don't, I find that kind of just weird that you call it a mystery, but
0: yeah, I don't well, want to
1: belabor the point.
0: That's all right. Yeah, no, it's a fair, um, it's uh, yeah, I think, fair enough. Um, <laughs> that that's fine. I I just I, it seemed like an interesting way to think about this problem because he is talking about so so that I mean so okay so how okay now we've talked so if we want to sort of uh, recap you know okay now we've just done creator creation distinction so what is it that's different so manichaeans believe that there's little bits of God that sort of extend from the particles that are God in all things so God pervades everything in some way. Um, and evil is also another sort of dualistic force that is is, is a substance that's in all things. Um, so, how do we proceed to the notion of evil? Well, the question becomes: So, okay, so if this is the case for for uh, so, Augustine's rejecting this manichaean notion Manichean notion. So, where does evil come from? If it's not an equally strong substantival force in the world, what is evil? Um, and this is the this is where you get into the typical Augustinian notion uh, that uh, that basically uh, sin is a failure of will. And so um, Augustine says uh, this uh, – uh, let's see where uh, – so he, he says um, a little bit further on in 3, 4 um, – he says that – he talks about the imperishability of God and the immutability of God. And then he goes down – I guess it's part five, really. He says, I concentrated on evaluating what I was hearing, that the free judgment of the will was the cause of our doing evil, and that your righteous judgment was the cause of our suffering. Uh, but I had not the strength to evaluate the matter clearly. Uh, and, and he goes on, what raised me into your light was the fact that I was convinced that I had a will. as I was as convinced – Uh, that I had a will as I was of being alive. Um, So when I did or did not want something, I was absolutely convinced that it was no one but myself doing the wanting or not wanting. Um, I was on the brink of perceiving that there in my will was the reason for my sin. Um,
1: So so I I had some immediate questions at this part. What, since we have you, our language expert, language correspondent, Chad, can you, can you get us a, like, what, what is this word will here? Is it the way in which we think of sort of, uh, just would it, would it correspond better to Aquinas's sort of distinction of intellect and will, or her, I, I should properly say Aristotle's or is this use of will here, like more how we use, uh, just straight up desire in in English today.
0: So, yeah, Um, I I, I don't think that – it's It's an interesting point. I think it's an appetite – I mean I was going to call it appetitive, but now I don't know that I really want to say that. Um, uh, I I mean I I think that all – well, so here's what I'll say. So the word is um, uh, uh, liberum voluntatis uh, arbitrium. Um, so this is the, um, yeah, so, uh, this is the, so that's the, literally the free thinking of the will uh, voluntas is the, the, the direct word for will here. Um, and so, you know, Augustine's notion of will and the freedom of the will and all of these things are going to go, you know, are going to get, Bandied about a lot in Augustine's life, um, so he's writing this in the late three nineties, three ninety seven ish, which is um, sort of later in his development. And there's some debate even in uh, among Augustinian scholarship as to where he was in his progression. Um, so it's he writes a book called On the Freedom of the Will uh, in like three ninety, like seven years before the Confessions, and there he looks much more like, and actually that's the stuff that Pelagius uses for his own defense. So when Pelagius and Augustine later on have their debate about whether or not we have quote unquote free will um, or what that free will means, Pelagius will actually just quote straight up from the early Augustine and Augustine's like, Hey, no, we get, wait, wait a minute. Let me, let me explain what I meant there. Um, So I think in the confessions we're dealing with a more mature notion of his will. Um, And so uh, it, it is actually, you know, he's ultimately going to say that our will um, is going to be um, broken to some degree by sin. Um, so, uh, so, so effectively, this, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah,
1: so this sounds a lot like then the Thomistic conception of the the intellect, then, because it sounds like the because the intellect's job, in, in the way Aquinas uses the two, right? The will is is appetitive. It's, yeah. uh, it's supposed to just be this. Uh, basically it's a, to to use like contemporary language, it's kind of just a disposition for the good or like a hunger for the good. And then the intellect has the job of sort of presenting to the will things as good. Um, And then, you know, the will can, the will still has like kind of final say it can like reject it or blah, blah, blah. And it can be affected by the passions at that point. So yeah, this, it, it sounds like, he is seemingly talking more about the intellect because part of what makes someone eventually choose evil acts is the intellect's fault, which it sounds like we've got that same thing going on here in Augustine. Um, because Aquinas ultimately, yes. Yeah. Because if the intellect starts presenting to things to the will as good that aren't, uh, you have a fool on your hands and that's like, you know what? That would be Aquinas's like psychology of like a, you know, I don't know, uh, a captain in the World War Two for Nazi Germany or something. That's what that's, you know, that would be his explanation. It's like eventually they've they've sort of created this habit of the mind where they're they keep presenting evils to the will as if they're good. And so it seems to be like that's the, yeah. the problem here.
0: I was absolutely convinced that no one but myself was doing the wanting or not wanting, um, is is what he says. So velim and nolem uh, there, but um, yeah, I mean, I think the so the interesting point for for Augustine, sin enters the world because of disordered will. Um, that is a will that chooses. So he'll say um, in other places he doesn't say it precisely in this fact uh, in, in this passage. Um, so let's see. Um, who made me, surely was my God. Well, so this is the next part. So once more, I started asking, who made me, surely is was my God, who is not only good, but his goodness itself. So how come uh, I am capable of wanting evil and rejecting good? Um, and he asks himself this question. And uh, really what he uh, is, the answer for him to that question is my my will was disordered. I chose, I, I chose the wrong thing. So Adam is sort of the archetypal and the uh, beginning of this. So sin sort of enters the world for humans because Adam chooses a lesser good for a greater good. So it's not that God creates evil and it's not that evil is a force within the world. Evil is a privation of good and we'll get on to, into all that. But even before the privation of evil stuff is Augustine's notion of a A disordered will. Um, And ultimately all humans after Adam are going to inherit a soul with a disordered will that, that um, desires lesser goods rather than greater goods. Um, And Adam was sort of the first one to choose this. Um, And it's ultimately for Augustine, this is a kind of pride. um, And that's why uh, Christ comes to teach us humility, which will be a big part of this passage. Um, all of us have ultimately chosen ourselves over God. Um, and so the antidote, the um, in ancient medicinal terms, um, the antidote that is the opposite um, that has to be applied is humility. So if, if our sickness is pride, um, our disordered will, choosing ourselves over God – we need the medicine of Christ—is um, His humility—to to to, to uh, repair this broken will. Um, and yeah.
1: So one one of the most confusing passages is right here, in my opinion. I, I was I was confused. It could be because of my dense intellect, but we'll <laughs> we'll we'll see. He says. He's you know he gets this part he says when I choose to do something or not to do something, I was sure that no one else was doing the choosing, and I came to a clearer realization that any sin I committed was my own act, okay uh-huh. so far, so good, but sometimes I could see I acted without choosing, so right there that's why I kind of want to know what the will was because now it sounds like when you say I acted without choosing if you take a really contemporary uh version of act without choosing it sounds just sort of contradictory that's like saying you basically acted without choosing to act or something like that that's the part yeah. that but if it's you're arbitrating essentially your it's your ability to um discern between two different things um uh, now it makes sense it's like when you see a donut And you, I don't know, you really like donuts and you just straight up, just reach your hand out, grab the donut and just put it in your mouth without arbitrating between, should I do this? Should I not do this? So if that's what he means here, I'm like, okay, so sometimes I could see I acted without choosing. That was immediately what I thought. He says, but then I'm more acted upon than acting. I was like, okay, that's a weird way to think of it, but maybe he says, and this I concluded was not a sinful act. But the punishment of sin? And I promptly expressed the conviction that this was the work of your justice, responding to my injustice. And he doesn't go further on to explain exactly what this sort of action that seems forced upon him was or did to him, I, or what type of class of actions he's thinking of. Yeah. I just became utterly
0: confused by this. What? Explain, uh, expert <laughs> Chad. <laughs> I, as I look at the text, I don't know that I can justify my answer specifically in this text. Um, so that is to say, what he begins to start saying here is, is obviously, um, confusing, decidedly confusing. And I'm not actually sure that he, like, untangles it well. Um, but he begins to make a distinction between something you commit and something that you suffer. Okay. Um, and if you suffer something, that is. So he said, "Uh, uh like uh, a little bit, actually a little bit up." Um, the so I the so the, the first line is the um I that the free judgment of the will was the cause of our evil doing, and that your righteous judgment was the cause of our suffering, um, which doesn't seem. Um, which doesn't seem uh contradictory or problematic. I think what becomes problematic is when he applies that second clause that your righteous judgment. So like he picks up the judgment, and I judge that this was not so much my fault as my punishment. It's sort of like, okay, where is he go how is he making he makes this distinction at this top, and then he hops into the second half um at the bottom almost without uh warning <laughs> or without a connection to the previous statements. Um I quickly had to admit that my punishment was not unders- undeserved, for I considered you to be righteous. Um, and, and then he goes on to all these other things. Um, and so, uh, what I, my you know my reading from other Lady Augustine is this is why he thinks we are in bondage to to the will, and our bondage to the will is legitimate. Um, That is part of the – so part of the – what Christ does, Christ comes um, to set free the will um, and to return to us a free will that has been – that has been, uh, uh, enslaved to sin. So we can, uh, so this is, kind of, and, and, you know, again, I'm, I'm filling out what's clearly not there right. in the text. Right. right. So, like, let me, I, I just, just to be clear, I'm, I'm just saying, okay, I'm not exactly sure what Augustine means in this passage precisely, or I think he kind of makes leaps that he doesn't fill in. Uh, but if I'm being fair to him, the way that he plays it out later is it's, it's, it's response to where Paul says in Romans 7, um, I, the things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I don't want to do, I do, right? This is – like that passage is classic Paul, um, and it's also like Augustine makes a huge deal out of this. And so he thinks that we're all enslaved to a sin that's no longer liberum. Voluntatis arbit, uh, arbitrium. So basically, we now have a an, a a a, uh, um, a punished um, will, um, a will that has been uh, that continues to choose and do the wrong things, and is no longer free. And it's a ma- it's a matter of habit. So, kind of, I mean, one way to think about this in sort of a, in a more uh, Aristotelian or even a, a Thomistic way is to think about the fact that, kind of, what he's talking about with the case of the donut is he's not so much worried, although the choice to eat, um, you know, one donut in excess would be sinful. So two donuts is fine, but when you reach for the third and now you're, um, uh, you're eating too much, um, okay. So if that's sinful, it's not that the first eating of that donut is sinful. It's the pattern that comes when you eat, uh, the third donut twice and three times. And so now you're being punished by your enslavement to eating too many donuts every time you go to Dunkin' Donuts, um, and that is ultimately how he answers this question now how you get from now i think i mean if i were to add well yeah let me i'll say that so i think ultimately what he starts to say is our will gets gets sort of punished because it's a, a will that is um enslaved to the continuous desire that's been so okay. distorted um as kind of a so bad So the will habit. is
1: maligned it's maligned because it's sort of justice that it be maligned. Uh, we deserve for it to be
0: maligned in this way. That's right. Okay. Right. And that, that's how he'll later explain it just okay. to be clear. Yeah. That does. sound um, strange me, to... by the way.
1: Uh, I don't think of God as like, uh, as part of his justice maligning our will. I think it's, maybe it's like leaving our wills maligned is just like we, because we did it to ourselves. Yeah. Um, it just sounds, because he just has this phrase, and see, I don't know how faithful this is to the original translation, but in mine it says, uh, "With I could see I acted without choosing, more acted upon than act, acting. It kind of makes it sound like it's being done to him, and since it's God's justice being doled yeah. out, it sounds like his will is being sort of like active, actively maligned, which um, yeah.
0: So... Yeah, so he says, um, quote out him in vitus facerem, uh, uh, and then he says, facerem, pati me potius quam facere videbam. So all he's saying in the Latin is pati is the word that you are using for acted upon. And I think – I don't know that he wants to say that God was acting upon him directly um, as much as though – the broken will was acting upon him. So Mm. that is that, that what that potty um, he was sort of suffering than actively committing Um, what he's sort of, what he's trying to make sense of in my mind is something like, how is it that we know that eating three donuts instead of two is bad, uh, but we keep doing it. Mm. Um, How is it that we seem to go against um, this? Well, it's uh, well, it's, it's as if part of my appetites are so out of control Um, that, that, um, that even though part of me knows uh, that I shouldn't do it, I still do it. Um, and that's how he seems to, he he says he feels like he's being acted upon and what he, like, I, I actually, this is now that I think about it, this becomes kind of critical in book eight because he, um, you know, there's that famous, uh, line from book eight where he says, Lord, give me continence or give me chastity, but not yet. Um, and he's like he's trying to figure out okay he he knows that he wants it, but he kind of doesn't either uh there's he's he's got these two warring factions in himself, part of him wants to continue having sex without um getting married um and part of him knows that that's not what God wants. Um, And so he can't quite really become a full Christian, as it were, um, because he has these two warring factions within him. um, And he's trying to find a way out Okay, so it sounds to
1: me almost like the distinction often made in philosophy between, um, especially in free will debates, between sort of higher order willings and lower order willings. It's almost as if what Augustine's confession, Sort of confessing to is I, there were moments where I saw a thing and I wanted to do it. And I could tell that I was the one that wanted to do it. And in the, in like the, the fullest sense, in the sense that I, I reflected upon it and I chose it. And this, I could see these sins were my own fault. But then he's like, but then there's other times where I had, and it kind of reminds me of that. Quote you mentioned, um, you know, make me chase for not yet. It's as if he has a higher order willing. So he wills that he doesn't will something, and yet that will persists, that lower order for the. Yeah. So, because the distinction, by the way, just for our audience, is you could will to do an actual action, like a, to, you know, actually move your limbs in a certain way or do something, actually perform an action in the world. Um, that would be sort of the first order willing. A second order willing is to will, to will something. Um, and, you know, you, this is often the fight you see, for example, in a, you know, someone who's trying to quit smoking um, is a classic example because they, they pers- the first order will persists under the, con- even though that second order willing is there to not smoke. Um, so anyway, yeah. So it seems like, it could be the case that, you know, though I'm, of course, this is not what Augustine said, but it it seems like this distinction would be helpful for understanding uh, what Augustine seems to be saying. He's going through, I guess. So,
0: yeah, and and like I said, you know, there. Okay, so from a um, a sort of scholarship standpoint, um, some people will talk about redrawing Augustine's conversion to where actually they think he doesn't even convert to what would be sort of equivalent to orthodox christianity until the early 390s um and even though by the account that he gives the garden scene which we're about to read at the end of book 8 occurs in 386 mm-hmm. um and so some people will sort of say it's almost as if augustine actually isn't an orthodox christian till 6 or 7 years later um uh, which I oh, I only bring that up to say that again we're talking about um, uh, how you know his progress and so his understanding of what is happening at this moment might be colored by later portions of his life. Um, so the story that he's telling about where he's at, he's trying to make sense of something that occurred quite a few years earlier. Um, at, at, at this point, at least ten years earlier, um, and. What, what I take that to be – the reason I bring that up even, even more, um, although Augustine is a very reflective, introspective um, fellow, what makes Augustine unique in the history, even of philosophy, a lot of people will say Augustine does more work on whatever willing is um, than – many philosophers I don't I mean I, you know of course if I make some claim like he's the the first or the only one someone <laughs> will find someone else and whatever yeah. but like the amount of detail and the amount of time that he focuses on the will is pretty unique um, and I think that's really important because what he wants to what he wants to do is take 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 a full account of the fact that sometimes um, it's not just a question of do you know the right thing to do And do you do it? Mm -hmm. Um, And you don't always. And so he's trying to find a way uh, to more fully account for that. So he's being, he's being introspective and he's trying to give sort of rational cognitive reasons for something that is just an appetite in a way. That's a desire that in a sense goes beyond that. Um, And so he knows that at the core of, of human um, life is the fact that, we have urges we have desires and they're shaped by a lot of different factors and even when we're reflective about them there's going to be a sense in which language um falls short and conceptual categories fall short to take account for the fact that no matter how many times i know i shouldn't uh i don't know uh like if i you know if i'm getting ready to make dinner i know that um that the salmon and the salad is better for me, but I went to my brother-in-law's restaurant and ate fries and a burger uh, because it was just – like <laughs> I just wanted something that tasted delicious and fatty and meaty, uh, even though I'm getting ready to ride 100 miles on Sunday and I probably should be eating more salads. Eventually. Right. Uh,
1: but We've all been there, about ready to ride 100 miles. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, well, yeah, but you know what I mean? I, <laughs> yeah. Like, so I, like if, if, if we, if we at least like, we can at least be charitable to that point now, whether or not he accurately construes, uh, you know, punishments or, you know, again, this isn't the fullness of his account of will, uh, which will be fleshed out, uh, after the confessions, um, in his, his, the historical timeline of his life. So if we haven't said it in the past, um, roughly 398, is the uh, letter to Simplicianus, uh, or the, excuse me, uh, the diverse questions to uh, Simplicianus. And a lot of people will say that's kind of a landmark text where Augustine starts uh, reading Romans and really becoming the doctor of grace. Um, so uh, one of Augustine's sort of titles in the history of uh, Christianity is the doctor of grace or the father of grace, one of these sorts of things. And he really takes that on, um, in the, like, just after he's writing the confessions. Um, and cause, cause grace, grace is going to become this whole other, um, sort of, I don't know, metaphysical or theological, um, concept that was totally absent, um, in, um, well, he, gratia, the word that he uses is totally different from the classical use of the word. Uh, gratia is the word where we give, get thanks. Mm-hmm. Uh, gra- uh, gracias, Spanish. Um, and the word that he uses for grace, gratia, it becomes like a spiritual, uh, I, you know, a spiritual growth hormone. <laughs> um, it becomes this thing that's injected and infused into our bodies to transform our, our willing to will the right thing. Um, and, and grace is what unlocks and frees the will. right? Um, and it's, and, and so, you know, so it's like that, even that word you have, like, you know, we, we talked earlier before, um, uh, before we recorded about, uh, philosophy and analytic philosophy and these sorts of things. And I pointed out that roughly I was trained in a, a kind of broadly a- analytic tradition and it, I think it has its problems, but, uh, But what I love about it is uh, I was always taught to uh, find the term that's actually at stake and make sure you know what you mean when you say it. So find the real – like the critical word or the critical phrase and define your terms Uh, because a lot of times uh, philosophy uh, or when people are talking, they aren't careful with their language and they aren't careful with their usage. Um, And so um, I actually heard a whole dissertation defense on grace – just a couple of months ago. And I said, Hey, had you considered the different ways that the term gratio was used in the ancient world? And the guy defended his dissertation. He said, no. Uh, and he said, I just was looking at it Augustine." And I was like, well, it's at least interesting to think about the fact that <laughs> this word has like, he fills it with whole new content almost.
1: Yeah. Um, no, that, that and, is definitely yeah. a, a trick of the trade in analytic philosophy. It's find the ambiguous terms or find the vague terms. And flesh out the different meanings if it's ambiguous or uh, point out where it seems to be vague or how it seems to be vague, if it's vague. And you get this, yeah, you get this persistification conditions that just keep coming up in an argument when you keep having to sort of analyze your concepts, which I really does go all the way back to uh, Socrates, of course, because that's basically all he did was walked around <laughs> <laughs> ask people yeah.
0: yeah, ask them to yeah. find their
1: tires. How could you tell yeah. me what you mean by pious there, uh youth Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's a good point. And also to to add, right after he gets this passage I found puzzling, right after he says it, he says, but this raised a further point. And I and I like this honesty here in Augustine. Uh he says, Who after all made me? Was it not God? Not only greatly good, but goodness itself? then why would he give me the power to choose evil as well as good? Was it so that his justice could be vindicated and punishing me? Who gave me this power? Who sowed in me this seed of sour when sweet was God's making of me, all of me? And I I don't know. I just, I like, he goes, he does this a lot in the confessions. If uh, our listeners haven't read the confessions, he, he does this thing where, he's just kind of confessing his thoughts out loud. Like I I started to realize this, but then that just gave me all these other questions. And it's, it just shows also how nothing is really new under the sun. These, these are all the things you would still hear from like sort of your skeptical uh, young person who's uh, finding their way and not sure about God. These are all same questions they'd ask. Um, Anyway, that was just more of a admiring Augustine port- <laughs> portion of the show.
0: <laughs> no, I, I, I appreciate it. I, I thought if I, if I haven't said it enough, I mean, these are the kind of questions that may, you know, have continued to bring me back to Augustine because I'm like, well, I don't know if he's always right or I don't know if his explanations are perfect. But it's fascinating to think about the fact that someone 1600 years ago um, who – is taken to be the authority on some of these issues by later theologians and philosophers, uh, it, at the very least was asking the same questions I am. Uh, and, I mean, it's definitely the case if you read his, I talked about On the Freedom of the Will, uh, which is a, um, a book that he writes earlier, before the Confessions, uh, that gets used um, against him <laughs> by his opponents. Uh, but in that, he asks some of these questions, like, well, wait a minute. Um, if we're supposed to be free what does it mean for us to be responsible for our sin and what is it you know like he just puts it in plain terms what all of us are already thinking Um, so you know so then because like sometimes i'll hear people having theological discussions and oh i hate augustine uh i heard someone say the other day well i don't like reading augustine because he's too logical he's just so logical about everything and i was like are you thinking about Calvin? <laughs> Calvin was very logical, yeah. um, and and he was like, "Well, yeah, I mean, I met I met a Reformed seminary in town. I was like, okay, uh, so you're reading Calvin through the, or you're reading Augustine through the lens of Calvin, um, <laughs> and you know that may not be exactly who Augustine is, um, yeah, not because actually I. Th- I think he is logical in a sense, but I think what makes him so fascinating is he takes account of the stuff that isn't logical in human nature.
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah. He's, he doesn't, yeah. He doesn't remind me of like, he's not robotically logical yet. He clearly probably because he's a, a good orator, um, is well versed in like seeing what someone else would say, seeing what would come next. Um, so it, it's more of like a, a classical rhetorical training that makes him so good in, in the art of argument, which allows him to of course make these really good logical steps, but yeah, but he's not like robotic. He's not like uh, someone who's just like, I don't know, pe- contemporary analytic philosophers you read today or something, <laughs> but yeah, but it's, yeah. so that's, that's kind of funny that your friend said that. Um, the the next passage he's starting to realize that uh God is non-decaying because the non-decaying is superior to the non-decaying. And I just wanted to point out you I'm sure you'll have some more to say maybe, but I the one thing I saw in this passage was he says that uh God wills his own good and mm-hmm. is that good. And that that is very important in the history of theology, since this, of course, is going to affect Aquinas, who's going to become, you know, the angelic doctor. So uh, Aquinas goes into huge detail uh, on this point, and it seems like still to this day I read, like, for example, Christian philosophers who who want to talk a lot about this, how being um, this now now I'm adding things. This isn't in Augustine. But it seems like the thought that gets developed from this passage is that uh, to exist just is to be good. Something like that. Being and goodness are sort of that's one right. and the same yeah, right. thing. And the since God is sort of, you know, pure existence, um, or one way of putting it to be a little less vague is to say God is sort of the thing that always is actual, always in actuality, whereas other things can potentially come to exist or potentially uh, come into actuality. God just is pure act as Aquinas would call it. And uh, this, and this is a strange thing. I remember when I read Aquinas and even some other medievals, they would often say things like he wills himself And it just sounds so strange that God wills himself, but, um, and and I hadn't known where the root of such a thought came from, other than maybe this was just a conclusion they thought fell out from their philosophy. But since this is actually my first time reading the confessions, it's my confession, um, (laughs) I, I, I was just, when I saw that here, I was like, oh, okay, so this goes all the way back to Augustine. This is, this is neat
0: yeah well i think um right in in the uh well in aristotle um right he's there's the difference between like a, like act and potency um and i guess there'd be something similar in will and he's just is pure will, so it's not like he has the desire to will um simply or something he has to put that will into actuality i mean i is i don't know if that's these are not the terms that he would have used but i was trying to think of like the sense in which he recognizes something at rest versus something in motion um and so he has to be pure will if he wills something he has to be pure willing because he can't be in a state of just sort of before willing and thinking about willing he has to be in the action of willing um so he is pure will purely willing in that right. regard um, I guess, um, yeah. but
1: uh, uh, and go, I was, go ahead. Sorry, I was gonna, no, you you go go. <laughs> uh,
0: I was going to turn the page, sort of turn kay. the page a little bit, but oh, yeah. I was just
1: going to say that uh, later on, on that in that very same passage, he says that nothing exists but by your knowing it. Um, again, just more of a tracing ideas throughout history. Uh, it seems like. It's it's not o- obvious, uh, at least if you're just like some sort of new Christian, that you had come to this conclusion that God's very knowing is the reason why something uh, exists. And I also thought a little bit of a strange puzzle because uh, Augustine will have to spell out what that means, and maybe he, he does later in the Confessions. But it's there's obviously privations can be known about. So then it seemed a privation being a lack of something um, for our listeners. Uh, and so if you know about a lack of something, it's, it, it seems then harder to make this connection between things that exists and uh, God's knowing about them. Like I don't, so anyway, there's sort of a, uh, a thought and a, and a puzzle, but that was all.
0: Um, Yeah, just again, tracing the history of ideas. So it's funny, you took that exact same passage, because you know Aquinas better than I do. And you use that same passage, I underlined a section, I said, Oh, this is Um, (laughs) Anselm. Nice. uh, So he says, for no soul uh, ever has been able or will be able to imagine something better than you, who are the highest and greatest good. Um, and I, I said, it's, it reads a little bit like, uh, the, uh, proslogion where, um, uh, um, the famous, uh, Anselmian argument for the existence of God or the ontological argument for the existence of God is something like, uh, the being which nothing greater can be conceived. Um, and it's, you know, in a sense, you could draw that from this, no soul has been ever to imagine something mm, better than yeah. you, um, and so, uh, just talking about the sort of um, uh, fecund uh, nature of this work, right? I mean, the is or the fertile, and uh, just you know gives gives birth to lots of different authors in the history of uh, theology and philosophy. For
1: yeah, sure. certainly. I think maybe you know I once heard someone uh, sort of offhandedly say like it can all be traced back to Augustine when talking about sort of these uh, major theological distinctions. And at first I thought, oh, that's kind of like a funny thing to say, and, you know, not, he didn't, really, this person didn't mean it seriously. But the more I'm reading Augustine, I'm like, wow, you! I could see the seedlings of all these ideas. And he just gives them just a few sentences. Like it was clearly, he probably clearly actually thought about a lot of these ideas for like a long time. But in the confessions, it's just, gives it just a few sentences and just moves on. And it's like, whoa, that could be its own thesis. It's, so it's so anyway, really interesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well actually, so that could that that could also add to um you know, uh we're we're not gonna be able to discuss obviously everything in book seven, but he does spend like a couple chapters um comparing a slave and another guy on what they thought about astrology, and then he gives like you know, some conditions on twins and how astrology can't predict the life and, uh, you know, uh, uh, outcomes of the lives and destinies of lives of twins because they're born at the same time. So the stars can't predict them. And a slave believes it. And then a really well-educated person believes it. And it's just, it's as funny, like, I feel like he spends a ton of time trying to take down astrology. And then here I am saying like, Oh, yeah, one of the most famous arguments for the existence of God is basically <laughs> one sense. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and So, like, if you know, if anybody goes into a philosophy classroom where they talk about God at all, uh, almost inevitably they will mention Anselm's argument for the existence of God is where I first heard yep. about Anselm. Uh, and, you know, like... Yeah, like so the the you know the afterlife of that one sentence is uh way more important than several chapters on whether or not we believe in astrology, which I, I don't really have a whole lot to say about that. I I mean it doesn't matter to me, but you, needless to say, he rejects astrology. Um, and yeah, uh, kind of you that know, kinda, you know I,
1: I think for the a the layperson, they're not going to now have this worry, but this makes me think. What is my astrology that I'm arguing against? It really won't matter <laughs> in, in like you know hundreds <laughs> of years. I wonder. I wonder if academics yeah. or maybe we're also spinning our wheels on some topics. But anyway,
0: <laughs> oh, <it definitely laughs> yeah. matter. well, one thing I wanted to point out, I, I sort of mentioned it early on, but um, right at the beginning of seven uh, book, uh, cha- uh, uh, book seven, chapter five part seven he says so i was searching for the origin of evil but searching in an evil way and i did not perceive that there was evil in my very inquiry um i set out the whole of creation for my spirit to look upon um, whatever we can discern in it for example earth and air and sea and stars and trees and all living creatures um but my imagination set even these in order here and there as if they were physical bodies. I made of your creation one enormous mass according to their different types of bodies. Uh, uh, the mass was certainly uh, finite in every direction, but I imagine you, Lord as utterly without boundaries encompassing its every part and permeating it. Um, and uh, that's, yeah, and this is the part that I read earlier. So basically that, that um, so he imagines everything a mass and God being um, a mass that's bigger than all of that mass but having little bits of his mass in it. And so he, why does he say that he's sinning in this? Well, he's sinning because he has a di- he's uh his will is um decidedly disordering uh, the cosmos. He's misunderstanding who God is, and that misunderstanding of who God is is basically a um an imitation of what Adam does, who misunderstands that God is good and so chooses um, his own understanding of the goodness of the fruit over what God says. This is all. This is the for Augustine. This is the origin of evil. Is a disordered will, um, and so not understanding a proper, not properly understanding that God is the highest good, um, and is that is separate from his creation, um, and in a sense outside his creation. So we'll talk about how um, we'll talk about what that means. This distance and how Augustine is able to even. Um, uh, well, he's able to bridge the gap to God through Jesus Christ, which we'll get to. But needless to say, or but important, uh, not needless to say, important to say, state here, um, even this inquiry can be considered evil because it is at the root of all sin, which is a misunderstand which is a as a willful choosing um, the wrong um, thing, willful choosing oneself over God, um, and so yeah, so he can even say that his searching is evil. Um, and this then captivates his will to pride into the wrong things, and continually chooses lesser goods over greater goods um, so it seems you know from our twenty first century standpoints, it seems unfair to say searching and seeking is evil, but in in some sense, it is evil because it inherently misunderstands the world um, and so um, and acting on that and living and, and 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 uh continuing in that. Is, yeah, is what makes you know
1: to make it maybe seem a little less crazy because uh, maybe it might sound crazy to some people what what we've just said but I think we do think this with regards to uh, certain beliefs and to make it real obvious if let's say you think uh, African people are inherently inferior to European white people uh, we do take that to be like a type of view that just seeking and searching in certain ways to basically confirm your own answer would count as evil, I guess like that in that way. Like if it, right. for example, you might take yourself to be earnestly, all I'm doing is earnestly searching, but really what you're doing is like really racist, uh, in inquiry. Well, we do take, you know, so there, there are actually obvious examples, even in our contemporary with our contemporary uh, notions of, Sort of evil inquiry, um, and so it, yeah. it just might sound strange to people because maybe it, since it's a it's about God's nature and he just conceived of God materially, it sounds kind of like yeah, what did you what's really wrong here, Augustine? Like that doesn't seem so bad, but if if we keep if we keep in mind that inquiry isn't just like always good, which maybe is kind of an axiom people seem to hold today, but we do we do actually recognize evil inquiry and then you understand what he thinks the seriousness of his resulting inquiry was well, and and the results then, then I think it, it makes it seem pretty plausible and it's, it's easier to understand
0: where he's coming from here. Yeah. Uh, agreed. Um, so I, uh, I was gonna skip quite a bit forward because um, we've delved went quite into detail there, and it's to me it's just a lot of stuff about him. Um, he talks a lot about his pride, talks a lot about um, uh, the different like the different kinds of horoscopes and uh, and astrology that I don't care as much about. But is there something in uh do you is there anything you want to add in the next couple pages? I was gonna move on to chapter nine, part thirteen.
1: Um, oh, well, I mean, real briefly in, in the section on evil, he does mention the fact he, again, he he goes through this sort of shotgun question phase where he just starts asking questions. And again, I I just thought it was really interesting because he goes through, it's quite a long passage of just pure questions but it has this hopeful end so the types of questions just to give the readers an understanding is he's asking things like where is evil to be found how did it uh insinuate itself what's its root what's its seed or does it not exist then but if it doesn't exist how can we fear evil or is the fear itself evil do we fear a real evil or is the fearing itself the evil you know um how can this occur since When God created all things, all these things, he called them good um, and it was out of his own goodness. How can a higher good do this? He goes on, like, maybe was God weak? Could matter have come to be against his wish? If it was eternal, why did God let it lie around for vast stretches of prior time and only much later decide to form something out of it? I thought that was a really uh, interesting question because that's sort of, Uh, that also has a contemporary counterpart where people say, let's say you're a, a, for example, an old Earther. Uh, a, a lot of people are like, well, why God just let the earth sit around for so long. And he, he, anyway, so he's going through all his questions. He's expressing all these doubts. Um, and then he ends it by saying these things I was thrashing out in my mind, rattled it as with fear of dying before the explanation could be found. I was like, Whoa, um, that's, uh, steep and yet he says yet i stubbornly held to believe in christ our lord and rescuer and that is sanctioned within the catholic church my faith was fuzzy still was hazy about the standards of belief yet my mind would not give it up daily in greater and greater degree i was drinking it in i don't know and that i just liked i just liked how that was written
0: yeah uh yeah well well said that's a good passage i should not have skipped over uh, but you can see he is um you know he's still struggling with to what extent does he uh he said he remains steadfast in his heart um for the faith of our lord jesus christ true on many points it was still misdirected and wavering out outside the proper bounds of doctrine so even he admits to some degree that he's like i'm i'm struggling with it but i'm not exactly sure what i think um Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week um, and we'll have book eight. So I'm going to release both episodes on this one.